You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to War SDGs Under Fire. I am Bob Akabasade, CEO of Toronto Centre. We have a very special program for you uh, today. We have uh, 64 countries re represented here, all the way from Argentina to Zambia and all the letters of alphabet in between. So we're very uh, much looking forward to an exciting discussion. So um, I just want to say that the devastating war in Ukraine now in its fourth month erupted when the world was still grappling with the economic, social, and political disruptions of COVID-19. The war is disproportionately affecting vulnerable populations, including women and children in developing countries who are particularly exposed to price swings of essential commodities. Recently, I had the honor of interviewing the governor of the National Bank of Ukraine, who provided insights into the heroic resilience and resistance of the Ukrainian people and the central bank's important role in these extreme times. Toronto Center also has an ongoing program with the National Bank. Ukraine is only one of the conflicts we had in mind when we organized this important conversation. The global population of forcibly displaced people is more than 95 million because of conflicts in Ethiopia, Afghanistan, Yemen, Syria, Ukraine, and elsewhere. These conflicts have global ripple effects, threatening SDGs and exacerbating stresses on economic, international relations and global governance. According to the Financial Times, the war is a multiplier of disruption in an already disrupted world. We're on the brink of a global debt crisis as countries struggle to pay for energy, food, and fertilizers. Rising inflation, disruption of trade, financial instability, and millions of refugees all heighten uncertainties. Also, the significant increases in oil and gas prices may shift investments back to fossil fuel-based energy, which risks reversing the trend towards decarbonization, and net zero emissions. These disruptions are threatening global gains in climate resiliency, financial stability, financial inclusion, which are in critical to ending poverty. Since its establishment in 1998, Toronto Centre has trained more than 17,000 supervisors from 190 jurisdictions to become change agents for building more stable and inclusive financial systems. Our mission is sponsored by Global Affairs Canada, Swedish CETA, and the IMF. Today, our speakers will reflect on the challenges I mentioned and what can be done to mitigate the impacts. Now, it is my honor to welcome our very distinguished speakers. Her Excellency Elisa Goldberg is Canada's ambassador to Italy, Albania, Malta, and San Marino, and Canada's permanent representative to the UN agencies based in Rome that are concerned with food security. Anita Batia 
is Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations and Deputy Executive Director of UN Women, and her portfolio focuses a lot on SDG, Sustainable Development Goals. Patrick Njoroge is the world-renowned governor of the Central Bank of Kenya and a great friend of Toronto Center and a repeated guest. You already have seen their bios. Please join me in giving them a big welcome. Welcome to all of you. Just a quick housekeeping. Please don't forget to type in your questions in the Q&A section in English, French, or Spanish. So without further ado, let's begin. My first question goes to the ambassador. Uh, Elisa, you not only represent Canada, but also uh, FAO, IFAD, and the World Food Program. So your perspective on these issues is actually going to be very insightful for us. And not all questions are going to be about agriculture, but I just want to mention that. So the pandemic heightened climate risk uh, had already worsened our prospects for achieving the 2030 uh, SDGs. To compound that, we're now in an era of increasing geopolitical unrest, and Ukraine is a prime example, as I mentioned. As a seasoned Canadian diplomat with extensive experience with international organizations and international development, Ambassador, what do you see as the main threats to SDGs and what can be done to make sure hard-fought hard gains won't be reversed? Thank you. Thanks, Babak, and, and really delighted to be here with such great colleagues on the panel. I'm going to maybe start by prefacing my remarks with something that Madeleine Albright said um, about a year ago when I was at an event with her, and she said, I'm basically an optimist that worries a lot. Uh, and I would say that that characterizes my approach to international relations these days as well. And the four things that I spend a lot of my time thinking about is the COVID, the long tail of COVID, climate, conflicts, and commitment, uh, or the lack thereof. So my, my four Cs, uh, in a sense. And of course, achieving the SDGs was already uh, going to be a massive lift uh, for many countries prior to the pandemic, with increasing inequality within and among uh, countries, especially those in fragile places, and the growing impacts of climate change. The pandemic, of course, then exacerbated existing structural weaknesses, notably with respect to debt uh, and the trust gap between people and their governments, and stretched countries, and something I'm sure that Patrick will speak to more, but stretching economies, health systems uh, beyond capacity, all of which has contributed to strained social cohesion. Uh, I often talk about social warming um, as a phenomenon that we're, we're facing these days as well. And now Russia's invasion of Ukraine is further driving food and fuel crises, as you mentioned, uh, which undoubtedly is going to put many more millions of people into poverty. So just to say that your premise uh, is correct, that unfortunately hard fought gains are already being reversed when it comes to poverty, gender equality, food security, and creating those peaceful, just, and inclusive societies that we committed ourselves to in the SDGs and in SDG 16. So then the question for us really becomes, how do we reclaim the gains that we had been making and how do we work to accelerate progress? And I think there's lots of actions that we can take and I'll, I'll talk to kind of three groups of actions, but I think our bottom line has to be that business as usual really has to be a thing of the past. We really need a massive shift um, to get the world on a more sustainable pathway that's gonna preserve, reclaim and accelerate progress so that we can, can, we can fulfill our commitment to leave no one 
behind. And, and here I really want to underscore that despair for us is really not an option. Um, we need policy and political actions and a willingness to innovate at various levels. And so that's really what I want to leave us with, I think, in response to your question, which is actions that we can take at the global level, the national level, and the individual level. At the global level, I would say there's at least four things we can do. One is we've got to address the trust deficits that exist, trust deficits between states, but also within them. Um, and maybe a little bit later, we can talk about the most recent uh, results of the Edelman uh, trust barometer, uh, which I think is quite worrying for everyone who looks at the importance of trust. So we have to address trust deficits at the global level, finance the SDGs, notably with the smart use of our existing development finance instruments, but also in terms of attracting private capital. Third, uh, I'd really like at the global level to see us accelerate our emphasis on the data revolution. Um, if we're going to make sure that no one's falling through the cracks, we have to know what we're counting. Um, and resources are scarce. Time is short for achieving the SDGs. So we really need to make sure that we're targeting our efforts to the right things. And so good data and good data analytics is really important for us to stay on track. And then, of course, the last thing at the global level that I would say without getting into detail is really the importance of us investing in peace building, good governance, and following through on climate action. So that's at the global. At the national, uh, we need plans um, that are prioritized, funded, and actioned with intention. Uh, we also need to be inclusive. Uh, geopolitical unrest here is clearly tied to inequalities, and we know that gains in gender equality can have strong benefits for peace and stability. And so while there is one SDG that's focused specifically on gender equality, it has to be seen as a cross-cutting theme throughout because when we make progress on that, we will make progress across all of the SDGs. And then finally, there's actions that we can take at the local and the individual level. We need to take all of these complex issues that we're grappling with, this somewhat abstract framework that is the Sustainable Development Goals, and we have to make it meaningful and accessible for people in their everyday lives so that they feel like they've got some agency over this agenda. And so if we want to avoid backsliding, uh, we've really got to make sure that we're deliberate in directing our resources to the right things, making sure that we're doing things in the right sequence, and that we're being inclusive in our approach. Uh, the 2030 agenda and the SDGs is the right roadmap, um, but we've got to make sure that we're all in this together in terms of orienting ourselves. Thanks, Babak. Thank you very much, Ambassador. You certainly gave us a very interesting, uh, actually important blueprint in a very concise way. Uh, so thank you for that. And I remember a few things, your forces and how you phrased my question, which is how do we reclaim and accelerate the trust deficit? So there's a lot that you gave us to chew on. Hopefully other speakers as part of their uh, discussion and our overall discussion will pick up on some of these. Anita, welcome back again. It's always such a pleasure to have you at our events. Um, wars uh, severely impact the resilience and cohesion of local communities and disproportionately impact marginal groups, including women, girls, and female-headed households. Last February, UN Women did a rapid gender analysis of Ukraine. That's the name of the report you did. Can you tell us about this project and its findings? And have you conducted similar studies in other war-torn countries, such as Ethiopia and Yemen? And are you finding similar things? Thank you. Thank you for that important question. And let me also just say what a pleasure it is to be here with Elisa and Patrick. 
Uh, and thank you for convening all of us for this really important discussion. Um, thanks for your question on the rapid gender assessments. And just to give you a little bit of context as to why UN Women does this. Um, you know, when conflicts break out, uh, people are naturally very focused on the immediate impacts of the crisis, on the military interventions, on, uh, in the case of Ukraine, what you see, the women and children fleeing. But there needs to be a deeper and more nuanced understanding of exactly how women are affected in this crisis, because the impacts on women are often very different from the impacts on the rest of the population because of the different roles they play. So at the onset of any crisis, one of our priorities is to conduct these rapid gender assessments so that they can inform the humanitarian planning process because otherwise, we have learned the hard way through experience that the humanitarian response is often very gender blind. And if we want to make sure that women do not end up suffering the double whammy of both being the major victims of displacement, uh, as well as not having their needs met through the humanitarian response, it is vital to build that database and that evidence base which shows exactly what the impact is, what their needs are. And so, yes, we have done these, not just for Ukraine, but we've done them in Afghanistan and Myanmar in most conflict settings. And yes, there are actually similarities and patterns. And at the risk of stating the obvious, the first is that women, yes, are disproportionately negatively affected typically by the multi-sectoral and compounded impact of the crisis because uh, of several things which are particular to women. First of all, one of the things we have found is that women play a key role in the humanitarian response, but there is a huge mismatch between the impact on women and the degree to which they're actually involved in decision-making roles and the degree to which they can craft the humanitarian response. So they play vital roles. You know, they're very engaged at the community level, women's uh, civil society organizations, grassroots organizations, and we've seen this even in Ukraine, are playing a really important role in getting stuff to people and making sure their communities are receiving support. But when you look at formal decision-making structures, actually the women are sort of absent from that. And this is something that we see over and over again. We saw it in the COVID task forces, and you didn't have to look very far. You just have to switch on the TV and see who was discussing what a COVID response should look like. And you would typically see, you know, rows and rows of men. And so this issue of decision-making and women's involvement and women being at the table is really important because it helps to craft a better humanitarian response. The second thing is, the spike in gender-based violence. This is a common occurrence in conflict situations, and it is compounded by something where we don't often connect the dots. So let me connect some dots here, because what we have seen with the rise of illiberal democracy and the pushback on sexual and reproductive rights is that women are finding harder and harder to access those services that are needed and that are especially needed when there is a rise in gender-based violence and violence typically, and again, we have seen this again in Ukraine, rises during times of conflict. But 
What's the link to the liberal democracy, to the pushback on women's rights? It's this, it's that victims of rape in the war right now in Ukraine cannot get an abortion, for example, in Poland, because you know, there, this is one of a number of countries where there is such a strong regression on sexual and reproductive rights that this spike in violence is not matched by availability of services to combat some of the effects of that, of that violence. So that's a common finding uh, across conflict settings. And then the third is that uh, because of these safety and protection risks, being so high, uh, you know, the, the humanitarian response actually needs to incorporate this, right, into the specific humanitarian response and say, are there adequate shelters? Is there work to prevent trafficking? Are we training refugee center personnel on the risks of particularly young women being trafficked? And what alternatives are we providing in terms of livelihood so that women do not fall into this trap? So, and the last point I want to make on what do we find from these gender assessments is the huge impact of, on the care burden that women carry. And this, again, this is something people don't spend a lot of time thinking about. In fact, nobody thought about the care burden of women until the pandemic hit. And then it became so obvious that women were carrying this care burden. Now, this care burden for women has been three times as high for women as for men, even before the pandemic. And during the pandemic, this just shot up exponentially. So what happens in conflict settings is that care burden increases because and especially in a conflict like Ukraine, where the women are taking care of the children, the elderly, their opportunities for creating livelihoods and for any kind of work is significantly diminished because they have these other care burdens. So that's another finding that is common across. So one thing we need to start doing for these conflict settings is and this is our role as UN Women, as we put these rapid gender assessments out and we want the humanitarian community to actually create policy based on these findings. And that evidence base can be used to say, yes, women have differential needs, number one, two, the sex and gender disaggregated data is a vital input into humanitarian uh, response. And three, you have got to support women's rights organizations and grassroots organizations because they are the ones who actually know what's happening on the ground and being able to harvest their intelligence and their findings and their learnings is vital to crafting an appropriate response. Back to you, Babak. Thank you so much, Anita. Um, I really appreciate the way you framed it. And that's why these events are so refreshing for me. It's very easy for all of us to watch the war in Ukraine, but then, we turn CNN off and go up to, you know, back to our uh, daily life. Uh, but you have uh, put a spotlight on a dimension of it, which is really important. And also thanks for connecting the dots with illiberal democracy. You're very generous in your use of word. To me, it's a provision of populism that's happening. And yes, uh, taking rights away from people has repercussions, not just in one area, but in all different areas as well. Governor, I want to turn to you. Uh, you have the fortune or misfortune of going after two strong uh, uh, women uh, with very uh, uh, critical perspectives here. But I do know that you're also a marathon runner, so you know you have the stamina to uh, to carry on. So let's go with you. Not only you are a 
you know, the renowned governor in Kenya, but also you have your pulse on the challenges in Africa. Or unfortunately, we have these various conflicts in different parts of the world that don't just stop at their own borders because we live in an interconnected world. In my private conversation with you, you talked about the impact on food in Kenya and in Egypt elsewhere. Uh, these conflicts are having ripple effects in far corners threatening the SDGs. However, uh, a stable financial system is critical for achieving the sustainable development goals. And in your role as a governor of Central Bank, could you please tell us what are the implications of these conflicts for financial stability for the economy, not only in Kenya, but also in your region? Thank you. Thank you very much, Babak, and uh, glad to be back in uh, Toronto Center event. And again, uh, delighted to share the platform with uh, Elisa, Anita, uh, both obviously very distinguished and uh, experienced persons. So no, absolutely. I'm glad to be the third in this very strong uh, line of speakers. But your question, Babak, yes, it's absolutely true. The um, the wall uh, in Ukraine has opened eyes to certain things that maybe were always there. And uh, for whatever reason, we never really um, maybe identified them. And uh, now we are struggling to deal with some of those issues. Your question is more about uh, financial stability. But before talking about financial stability, I do want to sort of set the stage. The war in Ukraine. Um, I think first and foremost, aside from the, uh, the bombs and all those other painful images that we saw um, on our TVs and things, I think most of the images that are really endearing and in a sense heart-wrenching are the images of refugees freeing their homes, countries, you know, little kids, uh, women, older people, crossing the border, that sort of helplessness. I don't think there's a single person in the entire world who would look at that image and sort of go away unscathed or, or untouched without empathy to them. And I think this is the first image of war that uh, I think crosses the border into all those places. Of course, it, the war itself affects others. Um, and I think, for instance, in terms of uh, building uh, shelter and the support for those refugees, which really is a matter of course. Here in Kenya, for instance, uh, we do have, we actually, for a time, we had the largest refugee center in the world. And uh, that requires a lot of resources. Um, and uh, to sustain that, uh, it's not just uh, the food and etc. You have to process them and eventually lead them somewhere else. So I think the point here is that. Uh, there, there are things we need to do, we have to deal with because of the wars that have come to us. Second point related is we need to appreciate that Ukraine was, is one war, but there has been many wars uh, that have been fought today and uh, or have been fought recently. I think uh, we kind of forget uh, those wars with time. I mean, the war in uh, Syria, the war in Yemen, the war in uh, Somalia, um, the war around us, you know, South Sudan, and also the little wars, you want to call them little, but in terms of, you know, they, are, they have a small geographical footprint where, let's say, certain groups are fighting over resources, water, cattle, 
whatever else it is. And those wars are also as damaging. So from our perspective as uh, central bank governors, I think there's a, uh, there's a point we need to appreciate that we are dealing with these things, not just today, but into the future. Immediately, uh, one of the things we've tried to do is to strengthen the payment system because those people who are in the refugees, they do get some remittances from their um, well, somewhere, their friends, relatives, etc., around the world. And indeed, also from our perspective, we need to strengthen our payment system so that um, they can uh, they can get support, the support they need. Mind you, it's not just as simple as saying, okay, let's connect to SWIFT. Um, there's a lot that needs to be done to make sure that those payment systems work well, efficiently, etc. But another thing, um, so our job has really been to keep the lights on. That's basically what we've been doing, keep the lights on in the economy. And, uh, but even as we've been doing that, in terms of providing um, payment systems, uh, providing resources, um, I told somebody some time ago that uh, during the first months of COVID, my, I had two jobs. I had the regular job, which is being the governor, and my other job, which was struggling to get um, ventilators for the country, you know. So I was talking to everybody around the world, all my contacts, all the people I'd met in Davos, all the people I'd met in Washington, you know, asking them, okay, I need some ventilators. My point is all those are struggles that still become us. But let's talk about the SDGs. Um, I know I'm, I'm conscious I'm running out of time. What the wars have done, they've actually punched uh, a hole below the waterline of the SDGs. And uh, coming after the, 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 uh, the COVID shock that we just had, um, this really has set us back dramatically. The, the education systems, for instance, kids that, that are not going to, to school, um, kids that do not have access to health uh, services, etc., and all the Poverty, all those things that we talk, we we have talked about in terms of the SDGs. So I think from our perspective, uh, we are very conscious that uh, if we don't deal with the SDGs today, there will be significant changes or significant problems, even on financial stability, ten years, twenty years from now. So what we therefore try to do is to bring resources, the little resources we have, but to bring them. Uh, into the SDG space. And one of the things we've been doing, as you know, Barbara, is digitizing, um, sort of pushing on digitization for the, uh, to improve, let's say, the financing for SDGs. I happen to be a member of the task force of the United Nations Secretary General on, on particularly this issue. And, uh, and it is clear, this was just before the COVID uh, uh, pandemic. So I think the point I'm making is as, uh, even as we focus on our principal mandate, mandate, you know, price stability, et cetera, we do need to look at financial stability, but in the long term, uh, not just in the short term, but also in the long term. And therefore get involved in all these other projects, if you may, that will strengthen financial stability in uh, five years, 10 years, et cetera. Thank you, Baba. Thank you very much, Governor. You know, what's, what's very refreshing when I'm listening to you is like sometimes we struggle in our programs when we teach supervisors and regulators around the world. They want to know that latest thing that comes out of Basel or this or that. They want to focus on that. And our whole point to them is there's a bigger world than that. And I think if anyone made a very uh, 
you know, observant perspective on how to do this, how to look at this is you and this panel, really. I mean, like we don't wake up one day and all oh, we're on a vacuum and the world is just what's in our inboxes, right? We have to look at all these things happen. What is the mood of this dictator here, that dictator there? And all of a sudden we are find ourselves here. Also want to acknowledge, uh, uh, Governor, you're way too modest. Uh, Kenya is a, is a leader in financial inclusion, in digitization. Uh, we ourselves not only have uh, been training, but also benefiting from Kenya. Uh, and also, you know, your point highlights the study that IMF did, which is financial inclusion and financial stability, in my words, not theirs, is really are two sides of the same coin. You can have good financial inclusion without financial stability and really literally vice versa. And there, I see, I hear some of the echoes of what you said and also uh, uh, the ambassador's points about bringing uh, private capital. P perhaps that was a signal for blended finance she was talking about. But before we go to these questions, I'm wondering if any of you panelists have a question for each other before we go into the see what the audience has for us. Okay, go ahead. I just want to pick up on a point that Elisa mentioned. Uh, this one of uh, collective uh, responsibility um, that uh, we cannot do it alone. And I think this is a point that I, I don't want to get lost in uh, what we are going to say the rest of the uh, conversation. So it is so important uh, to do things together. Um, the discussions that are in those international fora um, maybe at times appear disjointed, but it is so very important. Um, if we are running the marathon, we have to do it together. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. All right. Um, sorry, are there any other hands? Uh, no, okay. So let's just go to the audience question. We have a number of uh, questions here. And uh, Ambassador, I'm wondering if the first one could be for you. In terms of the four Cs, uh, I guess forever we will call them four Cs, would the Ambassador please comment on the level of global coordination and collaboration? and I guess the subtext of that question as I think about it is, uh, we are not sure anymore about the level of global coordination as citizens when we watch. I know there's a lot going on, but uh, you know, ever since the illiberal rise of illiberal democracy that Anita was talking about, we get an impression that every person is for themselves, but you sit at a different perch. Can you please uh, provide us some perspective on um, uh, how we should we look at this co coordination? Is it happening? Do we have the right level? Thank you. Yeah, I think um, I, I saw Amy's question in the in the chat, and I think it's a great one. I would say a couple of things. Um, first, cards on the table. I'm a committed multilateralist, so my answer is always going to be that uh, the system is necessary, um, and that human collisions are necessary. That we have to have this back and forth, and we have to have spaces where we're interacting with each other. And you know, I think that was one of the challenges of the pandemic. Uh, was that, yes, we continued to have meetings and conversations like this, but actually there's nothing like being in the same room and hammering things out with each other and creating that social capital um, that's so important for enhancing global coordination and cooperation. So I would say maybe two things. The, the first is that it's global coordination uh, and collaboration does continue to happen despite the trust deficit that I emphasized. Um, it's not always good as it can and should be. 
Um, but it really does speak to the importance of multilateral and plurilateral spaces and processes. Um, and while that might sound kind of boring and technocratic, um, that those are the, the tools, those are the mechanisms that help us to make sure that the right things are getting to the right people at the right time and the right places. Um, it's also why we need really effective and efficient institutions uh, and, and why we spend so much time talking about a rules-based international system, which while it hasn't always worked um, the way that we would like to be, the reality is also though that over the last 75 years, it has progressively resulted in rising all boats and that more or less most of us with exceptions of some of the, the very large powers, uh, most of us are well served by this system of rules and mechanisms for coordination and collaboration. And that has helped us to be more sustainable, more prosperous, more peaceful over time. Um, but right now we have to be really vigilant about making sure that we don't see the, that the frictions don't get in the way of collaboration and coordination, that mandates and egos don't get in the way of collaboration and coordination. If I think about, for example, what happened during the, the pandemic and wanting to make sure that we keep goods and services flowing, there was this effort by the Ottawa group originally uh, to really have a focus on making sure that international trade continued to function. And that is vitally important uh, because you, could, you can't afford, I think we've learned to see the supply chain shocks that we saw um, and essential goods and services because we're so intimately interlinked with each other around the world, we have to make sure that those are functioning effectively. And a good example of international cooperation and coordination was that effort by the Ottawa group. Right now, there's a number of initiatives that are underway with respect to global food security. And I think here, um, there's certainly the work that the Secretary General is trying to do with his crisis uh, response group to try to bring together all of the different partners that are dealing with different parts of the food security system to try to make sure that everyone's focused in the same direction on food, on energy, on other kinds of inputs like fertilizers. Um, I do worry in this space, though, that there's a proliferation uh, of initiatives right now where everyone's trying to uh, add their little Christmas ornament to the tree um, and that is a risk in terms of coordination so sometimes I think maybe uh, we need to use the, the systems that we already have make sure they're functioning effectively and not necessarily generate new ones but also always have a hard look at are the mechanisms that we already have now functioning the way that they need to to make sure that we've got that efficient and effective global cooperation. Thank you. So I guess, uh, Ambassador, you're arguing for smart coordination, right? Coordination, making sure we maximize the impact of the bodies that are there set up. And of course, multilateralism is the way to go. And the answer is not just to create another patchwork of coordination on top of that coordination. And uh, that's very well argued. Thank you. Uh, Governor, a uh, question here um, for the lonely supervisors that I'm going to send. Uh, ask you because you also are in charge of supervision uh, central bank is any lessons learned for supervisors from these uh, geopolitical conflicts an interesting question right because normally you think of supervisors just being worried about one bank but as a governor uh, you know that things can be systemic and before you know it <laughs> things can get out of control so any lessons for supervisors as they're watching all these geopolitical conflicts around them Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Baba. I think the, the question here is we cannot remain uh, 
supervise us in the old-fashioned way. Um, we have to keep our eyes open. The way I think of it is the word innovation. Um, quite often you hear innovation in the context of, let's say, the private sector or the fintechs and things like that. But they, the supervisors need to be innovative and, in a sense, begin to see things before they come over the horizon and uh, begin to deal with them. So, for instance, the risks that war presents. The typical thing is, okay, what is the strength of banks? But the other things that they present, the risks on, uh, let's say, anti-money laundering um, or money laundering and all those sort of things, the financing of, uh, you know, other activities, not just terrorism, you know, uh, trafficking of human beings, etc. all those other things. And I think the, the regulator needs to be much more alert uh, seeing these things before they become real problems. At the same time, of course, we have to strengthen our uh, regular, um, let's say, uh, bread and butter, but also provide opportunities, provide solutions uh, to the banks as well. We have to work together to uh, provide pro uh, solutions. For instance, I was talking about uh, uh, this, um, the, uh, the largest, um, um, the, the largest camps, refugee camps that we have. And we do need to have systems where, for instance, they're given some sort of stipend, some sort of, um, you know, contribution, or some amount, you know, on a monthly basis, whatever it is. But how do you do that? The most efficient way is to do it through um, an institution that already has a footprint. And maybe one of the ways of doing this is to actually provide um, e-wallets to all of them in particular ways. So you have to come up with a solution which is an e-wallet, but actually also constrained um, so that you're not going into the rest of the financial system in a particular way. My point here is what you need to work together with the others to solve the problems, not just wait for them to bring solutions to you. So being an innovative um, regulator is what I would stress. Thank you for that. Thank you. That's true. And proactivity counts for a lot. And if we all learn a lesson was our big lesson was COVID, right? Here, there was a crisis that happened that had nothing to do with the financial sector. Eventually, event, actually, eventually, financial sector became part of the solution. But in the beginning, we're all in it. And it was something that everybody had to grapple with. So thank you very much for making those connections. Anita, I'm going to ask you the last question of this round before we go to our structured uh, section and all the questions left on the table. We'll try to come back to them. Uh, Cassandra is asking a question further to the earlier comments about large number of men in decision-making roles, or as you talked during COVID about how we saw them pining all the time, but that's just one example. In your view, how can women get to the decision-making table? I'm sure that's an item up on, the, on your staff meeting agenda every day when you meet at uh, UN Women. I'm just curious, what, what observations do you have for that? Thank you. <clears throat> Look, first and foremost, I think um, it, it is a question of recognizing that this is an issue. And, you know, for that, you need data. I mean, an extraordinary number of extremely well-informed people don't actually know the state of gender inequality in decision-making. I was at Davos, um, uh, I guess it was just last week. And, um, you know, I was talking to somebody and saying, you know, 
out of the 193 member states of the United Nations, only 14 have gender equal cabinets. When you look at uh, you know, women in decision-making roles, women who are finance ministers, ah, yes, that's right. I was speaking to the gender advisor to the uh, minister of finance of Nigeria. You know, there are only a handful of women who hold those portfolios. When you look at Wall Street, you know, the first C female CEO of Wall Street was only appointed two and a half years ago. When you look at parliamentarians, you know, only 25% of parliamentarians worldwide are women. And so these numbers are actually astonishing numbers, astonishing when you think about the fact that we live in a world where 50% of the population, slightly more in many countries, is female. And so the way to resolve this is one, to acknowledge the size and the scale of the problem, two, to have the political will. And in general, I'm not a big believer in you know, quotas because usually you know, targets can do the job, but on this issue of political participation, I have come to the view that you actually need quotas and you need quotas in for parliamentary positions and you need the political will uh, and the empirical evidence, you know, the base that says that having women in decision-making roles is not just a good and morally good thing to do, but it is actually a smart thing to do because your outcomes will be better. You know, Christine Lagarde used to say, if it had been Lehman sisters and not Lehman brothers, then maybe you would not have had the financial crisis in the way you did in 2008. And so I think this issue of having, appointing women is really important. And obviously on the, in the private sector, it is an issue of making sure, but also in the public sector actually, of nurturing that talent. And that means paying attention to things like the care burden, why is it that you look around and you see in so many enterprises, whether public or private, that at the recruitment stage, when women start off their careers, they're 50-50. When you get to the tops, so many women have fallen off the career track that there is this funneling process that happens and suddenly there are hardly any women at the top. And it's because we have not paid attention, sufficient attention as a society to create public policy to address the care burden. And if we don't address the care burden, and if we don't have explicit political will around representation, we're never gonna change this. So I think you need a combination of factors, but the first is to say, this is a problem. It's not just going to be solved organically. And we need to put in a set of public policy measures we need to, I have been saying to the fund, now that they have appointed a gender advisor, that one of the biggest things that they can do is to put out more research on why gender equality is actually a macro critical issue. And that part of this has got to be reflected in women's representation. Well, that's great. That's wonderful. And just to uh, use it as a seg to let you know that we've tried to do our bit on that, uh, Anita, for example, we've done sex disaggregated uh, studies and toolkits for how to incorporate gender dimension into supervision. Also, uh, right after this session, I am gonna close our third, the third cohort of our, that graduated from our women leadership program for female supervisors in Africa. Mm -hmm. I think Kenya also has representatives there in those courses. And one of the things we're noticing is 
it's really about cultivating uh, women leaders. It's like it's not going to happen on its own. <coughs> My apologies. And you're right uh, in terms of quotas. Uh, I know personally I would support that because there has been sufficient time to deal with these issues on quote unquote merit based. But if that doesn't happen, the quota is one of those uh, things that can come forward in a very decisive way. After all, men have had their quotas forever, right? So, so that's just one way to, to look at it. So let me, at this point, uh, go back to our uh, structured section of the program. And my question is to the ambassador. Ambassador, uh, I've known you before you were an ambassador and your reputation at Global Affairs Canada was always as someone who was very uh, straightforward and results oriented. So. Now you find yourself as a permanent secretary to all these uh, alphabet suit of, uh, suit of acronyms and uh, they deal with food security and others. So when you were there as Canada's top envoy on food and agriculture security at the UN, what are your views on the impact of war on global food security? Should the international, how should the international community respond? And before you get at it, uh, I remember I read like a staggering statistics that something like 25% of food, I, 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 I'm not exactly sure if it was Africa or worldwide, that actually is dependent on Ukraine and Russia together. So we're talking about large numbers here, right? So what's your general sense on this, please? Thank you. Sure, and I'll maybe tackle the, the data as well a little bit uh, to say that different countries are relying in different ways. Um, so for example, both Egypt and Lebanon were 80% reliant for their wheat, for instance, on exports from Ukraine. And that in and of itself isn't necessarily a bad thing uh, until another country decides to invade the provider uh, and to then uh, prevent those foodstuffs, which actually the Ukrainians have and would like to be able to fulfill their contracts to those countries, but they're currently unable to do so because of the, the Russians. But let me back up a bit. Um, first of all, I would note that um, it's probably a good place to start to say, look, the international community is responding um, to the, the crisis as it's unfolding now, but we have to look at this with many layers and peel it back. Both there's a collective response happening, as I, I mentioned in response to the previous question, and then there's individual things that countries are doing to try to address Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, and I'll start there and then work my way out. Um, as a collective effort, I mentioned already, for example, the UN Secretary General's Crisis Response Group. And it's really important because that does have all the major stakeholders around the table, uh, at least from a systems perspective, trying to make sure that they're all pulling in the, the same direction and trying to identify some of the solutions that can be brought to bear. On an individual basis, there are, in the, there are countries that are also stepping up. Um, and I think we've seen that uh, around the world. Um, India is trying to contribute. Uh, certainly Canada is trying to contribute. We, for instance, have uh, allocated um, about 245 million just to the World Food Program uh, in the last uh, couple of weeks, um, because that's a vital instrument to address humanitarian needs that exist in the multiple countries that are experiencing food insecurity right now, um, conflicts and disasters. We've also been participating in various conversations that have been taking place at the global level, including last week in New York um, in the Security Council uh, in order to address global food insecurity. But I, I say all this um, 
by wanting to make sure, as you said, that things are in their bigger context. It's really important to recall, and I think this is a point that Patrick was also making, that in 2021, so before the invasion, there was already 193 million people around the world that were acutely food insecure in more than 53 countries. Okay, so that's five candidates because we're 38 million people more or less. So five Canadas were already food insecure around the world before Russia decided to invade Ukraine, one of the world's bread baskets. Um, and there's three bread baskets here that matter uh, because they're all implicated one way or another. Um, the reason why we focused on this as a food insecurity crisis that has the risks of exacerbating everything is because two of the world's largest food exporters, Ukraine and Russia, are implicated, as are two of the world's largest fertilizer producers, which is Belarus and Russia. And while a number of other countries can step up to try to fill the gap, like for instance, Canada's doing, it's our planting season. So we're certainly all hands on deck to try to see what we can do. We also have quite a bit of fertilizer, although it's potash, it's not necessarily the fertilizer that everybody else utilizes. Uh, there's an acceleration underway to try to um, move ahead with the green transition uh, and to really see this as a moment. But even um, with our, our best case efforts, we're not gonna get to green hydrogen today. That's gonna take a few years. So this is why there's this focus right Right now. Um, we are already seeing the implications of this trifecta uh, of countries that are implicated on um, the food security and energy nexus. So the implications for agricultural fuel, natural gas for fertilizer production, and for biofuels. So that's why this is as consequential as it is. Um, this conflict has much bigger ripples and will have a much longer tail like COVID and COVID didn't impact everyone in the world in the same way at the same time. We were always more concerned about the long-term economic tail of COVID in some parts of the world than we ever were really about the virus. Um, and that's the same in the context of this particular crisis situation. Um, it's going to have implications for multiple growing seasons. If we look at the number of unexploded ordinances, for instance, that uh, and mines that the Russians have been laying in the prime agricultural territory of the Ukraine, this is going to have implications for five or six growing seasons down the road. And so we need a global plan in order for us to be able to address this uh, effectively. Um, yesterday, I was at a briefing and WFP said that there'll be now, uh, in addition to that 193 million people that I already talked about that were food insecure, that we're at risk of having another 250 million people that will be made food insecure as a result of this decision by one country to invade another. Okay, so that's the bad news. How should we be responding uh, as an international community? And here I would say there's things that we need to do in the short term, the medium term, and the long term. And I'll pick up on some things that I think were really important that Patrick mentioned. In the short term, there's obviously the focus on lives and livelihoods. So that's the emphasis on humanitarian action. Um, so there's gonna be a short term need for us to respond to multiple countries that are experiencing um, food insecurity, but we also need to be thinking about supporting livelihoods. Um, as farmers face 
risks of food insecurity. There's always a risk, for instance, that they'll be forced to sell their livestock or to slaughter their livestock, which will have knock on further implications for their abilities to keep their families and their communities food secure. Um, or they might not be able to plant for consumption, which is something that we have to be thinking about. So there, there's uh, investments that governments need to be making in um, livelihood support uh, so that farmers can continue to keep things going so that their own productive assets aren't utilized. Um, the second thing I would say in the short term is cataloging uh, needs and planning for recovery. And so I mentioned the, the damage, for instance, to Ukraine's uh, agricultural infrastructure. We need to make sure that we're tracking all that and that we're already planning for what the recovery looks like. And this has started. Um, Again, it's not just uh, important for Ukraine, but it's important for the international community as a whole. The third thing in the very, very short term was something I mentioned with respect to the pandemic, and that's we have to avoid trade restrictions. Um, it's really important in the short term that we limit the urge to apply trade restrictions for, for, for short term protections for domestic supplies. Uh, we've seen in the past that this has negative effects uh, and the extent to which that we can keep trade open has a positive net effect. Um, it's also about burden sharing across countries. So that's the short term. Medium term, I would say that uh, certainly inside uh, Ukraine, the, the challenge will be to recover quickly and rebuild better. But elsewhere in the world, uh, to some extent, this is really about making sure that we execute on the plans that we already had in place. So we have the SDGs as a roadmap. We need to get back to executing on the SDGs. Uh, we also need to make sure that we're following through on the September 2021 Food Systems Summit. We just had a food a global food system summit in September, which laid out a roadmap of the kinds of things that we need to be doing. Uh, and we also had COP26, um, and it identified very specific things. These meetings talked about investing in climate change adaptation and mitigation through agriculture, inclusive growth across the food systems, um, diversifying production systems, for instance, so that you're not only reliant on one particular country uh, to grow particular goods, but that different countries have different capabilities. Uh, we talked about, um, and this is something that Anita mentioned, um, advancing and investing in gender equality. But here I would also say youth engagement was something that we've talked quite a bit about when it comes to agriculture, is making sure that youth are engaged. Supporting social protection programs and livelihood protection. These are all medium term, very practical things that we can do that will yield benefits in terms of resilience, which should really be our medium term objectives. We, we, we must become more resilient as societies because different shocks are going to continue to occur. And then the last thing that I would say is, is for the long term. And in the long term, we really need to apply, as Patrick was suggesting, the full force of innovation. Um, so that we help to untangle uh, some of the challenges in agriculture and food systems to build resilience so that we address some of the underlying vulnerabilities that we see. So, you know, when we're thinking about responding to droughts, dealing with salt intrusion, addressing food loss and food waste, oh my God, you know, one of the things that um, I've been really um, mindful of coming into this role in the last six months has been how much is actually wasted uh, around the world. We actually have ample global food supplies but there's a lot that we lose in terms of food waste and in terms of distribution. So there's work that we need to be doing collectively together around the world in order to address that. 
And I put that as a longer term objective because the application of innovations can take time, but innovation processes already need to be underway. And I, I think that we saw that, for instance, with respect to the pandemic, where we were able to proceed as quickly as we were on the vaccine front because of investments that had been made in vaccine development over the previous 30 years. It wasn't just a magical mystery pill that we took that enabled us to get our vaccines in response to COVID-19. It was those investments in innovation along the pathway. And so that's why for the long term, we need to be investing now in innovations um, on food security and agricultural development in response to the current crisis of food security. Thank you for that. And I don't think I've ever been at the same time depressed, but uplifted with an answer. Like you didn't sugarcoat anything and you laid out the, the challenges, the diagnostics of it in a very granular way. And your policy positions seem eminently uh, you know, reasonable. Only if people could stop fighting each other, right? And then we could get back to it. But one of the question I wanted to have a follow-up for you. A couple of times in your talk today, you talked about we should avoid the temptation for trade restrictions so that there's no confusion for the audience. You're not talking about sanctions against bad behavior, but you're talking about something different. Could you elaborate what that is, for, please? Yeah, absolutely. No, sanctions, uh, while we, we want, we always look at sanctions as a measure of last resort, um, sometimes they're necessary. I'm not talking about sanctions here for political actions. I'm talking about trade restrictions in terms of the movement of goods that countries have available. Um, so in order to protect domestic supply, the sometimes um, the, the knee-jerk reaction uh, will be, I need to protect my domestic supply, therefore I will put in place barriers uh, in order for goods to be able to access the international market. When in fact, when we keep the international market open and we have a conversation and dialogue and we keep things moving, it's actually better for everyone uh, implicated because different countries have different things at different times. Uh, and that helps us to make sure that we've got commodities going in the places that we need them to. But these are distinctive issues. Um, so thanks for asking. You're welcome. And Anita, as you can see, uh, uh, going with your words, uh, illiberal democracy, I think we can say the ambassador is a liberal Democrat, right? In this context, she's completely opposite of that. Coming back to you, I'd like to stop. Uh, sorry, I'd like to uh, focus again on global uh, community. Are they doing enough? Uh, so I guess I'm going to ask a question in a hypothetical way. And uh, and get your views on it. Uh, so if you and women was fully resourced, how much more, what additional actions uh, could it take to serve women and girls worldwide? Like what's your wish list in the context of the current conversation that we have? Thank you. Yeah, no, thanks for that question, Babak. And I want to thank Elisa for that very comprehensive, um, you know, um, outline of what, what the world needs today. But I think one thing that we need to put on the table and discuss is donor behavior and the actual state of global coordination. If you look at what happened during the pandemic, um, let, let's call a spade a spade and say global coordination failed because there was a time when you know, vaccine availability for poor countries in Africa and Asia was just not there. And there was vaccine hoarding going on in the developed world. So, you know, global coordination uh, was not at its best during the pandemic response. And we need to acknowledge that. And we need to look at donor behavior today. 
And, uh, you know, I have to say that I'm very distressed by what I'm seeing as a reversion to a focus on bilateralism in many aid programs. Um, you know, and we at the UN are feeling the effects of major donors announcing right now major cuts in funding to the UN when the role of the UN has never been more important. So there is a real mismatch or uh, between, um, I, I, I mean, some might even call it hypocrisy. There is a real mismatch between the words around multilateralism and the actions. So, you know, major donors are not necessarily walking the talk on multilateralism and we need that behavior to change if we really expect different outcomes. So if we want to be on track for achieving the SDGs, I absolutely agree that this cannot be done through public monies alone. So one of our goals at UN Women would be to do more work to catalyze in light of the framework of financing for development, the private sector, because this job is just too complex and too big to be solved by aid money alone and by government's political will alone. You do need civil society, young people and the private sector engaged. And that was why last week at Davos, UN Women uh, signed, we signed an agreement with BlackRock, uh, the world's largest asset manager, to try to create a portfolio of gender lens investment strategies and products and uh, incentivize others to follow. We have also been pushing, and if we had more resources, would continue to push for more of a gender lens in um, bond issuances and to capitalize and leverage institutional investor and pension fund interest in ESG assets. We are in conversations with a number of sovereigns on gender bonds and have issued a set of guidelines, the first set of global guidelines on gender bonds to help to create a new asset class because we think it is essential that gender is not just the business of those who traditionally do gender, which is women's groups and organizations like UN Women, but this is something that really needs to be integrated more thoroughly into the thinking of uh, ministries of finance, of central banks, and of private capital, hence the work with asset managers, hence the work with uh, governments to see what are the opportunities where their uh, debt situation permits for issuance of gender focused or gender bonds, for example. Um, the other thing that I think we would really need to do to make true this belief that many people have that Gen SDG five is the docking SDG for other SDGs and unlocks other SDGs is really tackle this long-standing wicked problem of violence against women. And actually what I would like to see happen is that this be declared a public health crisis. You know, uh, the SG called the shadow pandemic of the, the violence, the rise in violence against women, the shadow pandemic. But we do not bring to solving this problem the same global energy commitments, resources, and uh, political will that we saw that was necessary you know, during the pandemic. But when you stop just for a minute to think about the impact that violence against women has 
on women's ability to participate in the labor force, to be fully productive. Um, it is actually remarkable that governments have not done more. So part of our work, of course, if we were better resourced, would be to make that push for this to be declared a public health crisis and to be addressed like a public health crisis. Um, I do have to come back to the issue of women in leadership positions and uh, women in decision-making roles, because I actually do not think that things are going to change very much if we don't change the equation of uh, having women both in mind and in the room. So I do think we have to do more of that. And uh, there needs to be a huge investment in changing norms, stereotypes, and attitudes, because in the end, gender equality is different from some other kinds of development problems, because so much gender uh, inequality is rooted in people's views of, and these views are formed very early on, so there need to be interventions in the educational systems, in family units, with traditional leaders, with religious leaders, with faith-based organizations, and uh, in partnership with media and advertising because uh, they shape stereotypes and we need to change stereotypes about the role of women because without changing those stereotypes, you will not get the progress that you want to see. And finally, the last thing, coming back to this issue of illiberal democracy, there is a very unholy alliance between the rise of what I will call democratically elected dictators and illiberal democracies and the pushback on women's rights worldwide. We're seeing this in a lot of places. We're also seeing it in countries which have democratically elected democratic leaders. If you look at what's happening in terms of women's rights in the US today, it really gives you, uh, you know, it is very concerning because we are facing a situation where the next generation, my daughter, is going to have fewer rights than I did. And so, you know, if you're a student of history as I was, you grow up thinking that history means progress. Things will always get better. Actually, things are getting worse for women in many parts of the world. And we are seeing state-sanctioned misogyny at a scale that we have not seen, you know, in the last 50 years, actually. And so, there is a need for us to continue to invest in democratic institutions, in the free press, in media, in civil society, because there is this unholy alliance between those states and regimes which seek to oppress free speech and those that seek to oppress women's rights. In many parts of the world, these are positively correlated. And so you cannot actually advance the gender equality agenda without paying attention to advancing democracy and human rights as well. Thank you very much, Anita. And I think I, I really appreciate how you are shocking raising our consciousness on these issues because you have had a lot of time to think about and really internalize them. And for us, it's never, so this is very important. So just a couple of things, observations here. You know, using that tired adage, crisis is a terrible thing to waste. This is really an ideal time to talk about violence against women in the context of these wars. So I think it's very important that you and you and women keep doing that because there's a receptive audience there. In the case of 
again, coming back to the theme you introduced, illiberal democracy, I was watching uh, several uh, US right-wing uh, commentators, right? And one of the things that was shocking to me uh, was the fact that statements that I heard from a number of them, that the biggest threat to freedom in America is democracy itself. <laughs> I mean, it's such an oxymoron of a statement. And they phrase it as, you know, in code words like democracy is the biggest barrier for, for people, of legacy people, to preserve their freedom, right? So I'm going to stop at that. And I think you can do it, do the math yourself. You live in the United States, you can identify what I'm talking about. But it is very important for two democratic countries uh, to keep pushing. And uh, what Elisa is talking about is that voice that we hope it doesn't get lost because it's that is the urgency by which these things should be talked about. Governor, uh, let's go to something boring, financial stability. <laughs> I really want you to sort of bring this together for us because you've been listening to these comments and uh, economics and culture are not separate from each other. From your vantage point, what can central bankers and supervisors do to mitigate the adverse impact of, on SDGs and also ensuring that financial inclusion gains are not reversed as a collateral damage of the global instabilities and uncertainties we're discussing today. I mean, again, I go back to a very interesting anecdote you told me at one of our events in Washington, which was the power of digitization. That woman in Mombasa that wakes up at three in the morning, puts her order to buy fish from the fishermen who are coming to the shore at 5 a.m. and puts her, takes care of her kids and send them, then at 5 a.m. goes there, takes the fish and takes it to the market and sells and all, did it all on this tiny screen of a phone that's not even necessarily called a smartphone. So, you know, we're worried about those gains being reversed, right? Is that, how do you deal with that? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Babak, and thank you for reminding me of that <laughs> anecdote. Uh, for me, it is, uh, it's those, uh, those kind of issues, the problems that uh, people like that face. That's why um, we go to work every morning. Um, and it is uh, them that we are working for. So in effect, I should feel accountable to them. So thank you, Baba. But in terms of uh, where to go with this, it's true we should not, we should be first and foremost, we should be, we should open our eyes and see the real possibility of reversing those gains. And I don't think the issue is that it's now no longer an issue of possibility. The, re the reversals or the, those gains have been lost. We, um, not all of them, but some of them. And I talk about, uh, I, I mean, we, the space that I'm very familiar with, right? Um, finances, um, or for that matter, if you want to think about education. There are a lot of kids that have lost one or two years uh, because of uh, COVID. And now they are in trouble. They probably won't go up to school because they actually cannot afford it. And they don't have the food. Um, they don't, they, there's no food for them. So the, the problems that they have are 10 times more than say the problems you and I have balancing our, um, our family, uh, let's say budget and things like that. So I think we, as I said at the beginning, our heart goes out to these people. Our heart goes out to those citizens. Now, we as a government, and indeed we as uh, financial leaders in the financial sector, we need to see what tools we have. And one of the things that I think uh, we have been, we know is to bring more resources to bear on this problem. 
But there is, a, there is the first problem that we face. We, for instance, in Kenya are market access countries. Uh, we are market access countries, so we can go out there to the um, capital markets and, uh, and, uh, and borrow. But as you know, uh, they, those markets are frozen and they're completely dysfunctional, particularly because of uh, obviously the wars that are there, but also let's say um, maybe lack of clarity by some of the policymakers. Um, my my uh, fellow brothers and sisters who are in the same space as us. So I think the point here is that there is some collateral damage that uh, we need to sort of deal with. Now I know the other the the, the other source of funds has always been um, our partners, development partners. But unfortunately, as has happened, that window now has been closed. Um, gone are the days of let's say. Uh, two, uh, 2008, right? Uh, when uh, the MDGs were put together and uh, and all those other things. And indeed, that's, that is where the SDGs started from, right? Um, but that level of coordination that brought resources to the neediest of countries, um, unfortunately, I'm not seeing it. As a matter of fact, uh, Anita's one, well, we all know that they, uh, during the spring meetings that happened, uh, recently in Washington, D.C., um, there was a call for more resources to Ukraine. And indeed, at that time, uh, there was uh, an estimate that the IMF put forward of U.S. dollars, $5 billion per month over the next three months. So that's $15 billion, right? Um, and actually, the sense was also that this should be in grants, not as loans. You know, this is uh, about, this is uh, my estimation, maybe almost uh, a third to 50% of uh, the funding that all countries, that the countries in Africa get uh, from uh, the advanced economies. My point is, even as we look to getting uh, support from our donor, from our partners, I doubt uh, this is forthcoming. So in some sense, we have to go back uh, to the basics that we know, which is to use every single um, shilling, dollar, coin um, effectively, make it go the long, uh, as far as possible. And I think these sort of efficiency issues, um, again, means we need to use the tools that are available to us. I am pretty excited about digitization, not only because we are leaders in, this space, but also because we see the possibilities of it. One of the things that uh, we all know is uh, there could be other ways that uh, reaching even education uh, through digital channels, right? Not so much the iPads and things like that, that maybe in the advanced economies are now sort of um, uh, standard, but in all sorts of other ways, you know, digitization can help us not just in financing, but also in knowledge, imparting knowledge, et cetera. In Kenya, for instance, the penetration of the smartphone, or not smartphones, the mobile phones is, is over 100%. Actually, it is at 132%. 132%, there are more SIM cards than uh, adults in Kenya. And I think the point here is that, that is a, that's a tool, or that's a channel that we need to look at a little more. But again, going back, and as I finish, the point here is that uh, 
Um, it, we can use the channels that we have focused on the needs of the population. And I like the, the points that were raised earlier. Maybe it was uh, Ambassador who raised it about this thing of livelihoods, you know, uh, lives and livelihoods. And that is a point, that's a phrase that we have been using again and again and again, because it just means that you have to uh, support the, the uh, specific individuals the way, um, the way they, they need to be supported. I talked about innovation, so I'm not going to go back to it, but I think that is something that we as policymakers, and indeed even in our little space, the financial sector, are obviously looking at. Thank you, Baba. Great. Well, thank you very much. I mean, we're coming to our close, and our promise is always to end on time, but I can't resist uh, giving the last word to the ambassador, uh, because she really started with some points that give us both hope and things to reflect on. And before we do that, uh, Governor, you're so right. I mean, there's some international development agencies in Europe, I'm not going to name them. They're basically suspending their funding to organizations and communicated that to them because they want to settle, let's say, Ukrainians in their own country, right? And their own public policy officials and uh, influences in their own country are not necessarily happy because that's like a misuse of international development funds for the domestic purposes. And yet, you know, I'm not making a value judgment. It's a judgment they have to make on their own. But it, it brings to light what you talked about, which is for a fraction of that, countries like yours can benefit so much more than the actual aid that is being withheld. And my biggest thanks to all of you panelists. Uh, you really did an amazing job. You rocked. And uh, Ambassador, I'm wondering if you could just bring us home and close it up. But this is CNN style. We don't have a lot of time. So like, analyze the world for us in half a minute. So go ahead, please. There's a lot that I could say at this point. Um, I, I don't agree with everything that's been said. Uh, and I don't think that it's necessarily terribly constructive um, for us to um, criticize the assistance that is being provided. Um, what I'd like to see is more people in the swimming pool. Uh, and I think that that is the issue that we really need to focus our energies on. Uh, so how do we get more uh, people thinking about the sustainable development goals? How do we make sure that it is more than uh, just traditional donor governments um, that are allocating resources? How do we make sure that non-traditional partners uh, are also allocating? How do we make this an environment that they feel comfortable doing that in, that it's not jargony, um, that they can understand the impact that they would have by investing in this space? So that speaks to private capital. Um, there is uh, a lot of work that all of us need to be doing um, at, in our individual countries, and I mean all of us. You know, Canada has work to do uh, in its own uh, rollout of its national SDG strategy, uh, which it launched uh, two years ago, just like uh, I'm sure Patrick would agree Kenya has work to do, just like many other countries around the world have, have work to do. So the, the question really is, um, how are we going to get there together? Um, and to get there together, we have to make sure that we are investing in a high-performing, effective and efficient rules-based system where everyone sees themselves in it. And where the biggest, the strongest, uh, the most powerful don't necessarily uh, have the opportunity to squash uh, those that are not. That's the whole point of a rules-based system is that we all more or less follow the same rules. We all more or less feel that um, our right, the rights of our citizens, uh, international laws are being upheld and that's what 
the multilateral system brings to us. And so when we think about the execution of the SDGs, I think today we've talked about a number of really practical things that we can do, whether it is making sure that our um, financial systems are functioning optimally and we've got open dialogue about the areas where it's not, whether or not we're talking about uh, addressing climate change and climate adaptation and mit investing in mitigation strategies, whether it's making sure that we've got all of our shoulders to the wheel on gender equality and making sure that we're encouraging and fostering societies that are inclusive and diverse and whether or not it is making sure that international standards are being upheld. So there's a whole range of things that we can do at all levels, whether or not it's global whether or not it's national or whether or not it's individual in our own behavior, uh, we have to make sure that we do not uh, succumb to despair uh, and that we really focus on the very specific and practical things we can do in our individual uh, lives and in our professional careers in order to make uh, the world a, most, a more peaceful and prosperous place so that we are faithful uh, to the idea that we set out for ourselves in the SDGs, which was to leave no one behind. Absolutely. These are excellent and strong words to finish. Uh, despair is a normal emotion when there's we're so such a catastrophic times we're in, but we should not lose hope. And uh, you're absolutely correct that uh, we need to bring more people into the dialogue on the SDGs and and try to uh, capitalize on the collaboration that's already on the ground. Thank you very much to all our speakers uh, for your time, your insights. And as I mentioned earlier, this will be broadcast again and we will use some of these materials in our capacity building programs. Thanks again. Have a wonderful day, evening. Bye-bye.